Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, a host on the channel. And today I'm very happy to say we have Waitman Bourne on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Holocaust in Eastern Europe, at the epicenter of the final solution. Uh, welcome back, Waitman. Waitman's been on the show before. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a, always a great time. Absolutely. Now, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm currently a lecturer in the history department at the University of Virginia, um, and I also do some uh, different kinds of consulting work for the Holocaust Museum in um, D.C. I should say, as a result of that, that uh, any views expressed here are not um, the views of the museum. Um, and my focus as a, as a scholar is on um, predominantly the Holocaust and also um, genocide as well. Mm-hmm. I see. Thank you very much. Now, you wrote a previous book, and I really want to mention it because I interviewed you, you about it. And as I said in the pre-interview, it's a, it's a truly fantastic book, and I recommend that everybody who listens to this podcast listen to it. Can you talk a, a little bit about that book? Just give us a, a short course. Sure. So uh, my first book um, is entitled Marching into Darkness, and the, the subject of it um, – was the participation of the German army in the Holocaust, um, in this case in Belarus. And the historical question I was really trying to answer was, what does complicity actually look like on the ground, um, at the local level where the rubber meets the road? Um, Because we often hear this term complicity, um, and it has sort of a vague connotation. Um, And I was able to, I was fortunate to be able to find um, a large, or at least a representative number of cases um, that allowed me to really drill down into what are individual soldiers doing, what are the dynamics of the organizations, how are uh, Jewish communities reacting um, to these behaviors, and also, I think, expose some kinds of behaviors that are only recently becoming um, or receiving the focus that they deserve in Holocaust studies, one of which being sort of sexual violence and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very, very good book. I found it extraordinarily revealing. And as I say, I, I recommend everybody go and listen to the interview and pick the book up if, if you can. So could you tell us why you wrote The Holocaust in Eastern Europe? Sure. So I was asked by Bloomsbury uh, Press to um, submit a proposal for this book um, because they have a series of um sort of synthetic works uh, related to the Holocaust. And the more I looked into it and thought about it, I was actually um, very sort of surprised to discover, and I I don't mean to suggest in any way that um, this is any moment of brilliance, but that there wasn't a sort of one volume, very focused uh, book um, on the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. Um, written for a more general audience. And um, that really energized me, I think, into um, 
looking at this topic and trying to provide sort of a, a, a one-stop shop for a um, overview of this very complex topic, but also being able to um, drill down again into individual events and personalities and the experience of survivors and uh, Jews and collaborators and non-Jews and uh, Germans and Nazis and all of these sorts of things. And I must say that it was also very interesting and challenging to write in sort of a different voice um, than I have before. And so I really, really enjoyed the project. And I think, as we may discuss you know, a little bit later about why this is important, I think it's a hopefully will be something that's very useful for the general reader as well as, um, you know, as a teaching uh, book as well. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get right into the material. Uh, one of the things that I found uh, fascinating about the book is that, uh, it, again, th there's a kind of thesis involved, and that is that the, the Holocaust as we understand it, or sort of the, the Holocaust of concentration camps and so on and so forth, the Auschwitz image, it, it developed over a period of time and largely in, in one place, essentially Poland. Uh, it actually was quite localized. We know the figures that were involved in developing it. Uh, we know the early steps they took, and their early steps were quite different than the later steps, and in a sense, a reaction to the earlier steps. So could you talk a little bit about this distinctiveness of the Holocaust in the East and how it, it, it played into the development of, again, this, this sort of image we have of the Auschwitz Holocaust? Sure. I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that, and this is, you know, any of my students that are listening will recognize this sort of semi-rant, which is simply that um, I think that the Holocaust in Eastern Europe often for um, a lay audience um, is, as you sort of imply in a certain sense, um, superseded by other other versions of the Holocaust, if you will. Um and I always sort of mention Anne Frank in this example. Um, you know, not that there's anything. I mean, her story is amazing and, and is, is incredibly important. Um, but may, for many people, at least in America, you know, that is often their only experience in sort of the public education system with the Holocaust. Um, and they're dealing, of course, with someone who is highly assimilated, uh, non-observant, uh, upper middle class in Western Europe, which demographically if you look at the Holocaust is absolutely an outlier. Um, and so I felt like it was, the more I got into this project, that it was really important, um, not in a competitive you know, sense, um, but to provide this, um, you know, this other focus of saying, hey, you know, the, the average, if you will, demographically, the average um, victim, Jewish victim of the Holocaust, you know, is a, Orthodox or relatively Orthodox Jew, um, usually very observant, um, someone who lives in Eastern Europe very often, um, you know, not necessarily in a large city, et cetera. Um, and so when I wrote this book, I tried to um, really introduce the entire region and the history that's relevant to that region um, into the, the history of the Holocaust, right? Um, so, you know, two of the things that I think make this book um, perhaps particularly useful are the uh, the discussions of sort of why Eastern Europe, 
because the, there is a reason why the Germans, and I say Germans intentionally, because it's not just the Nazis, this predates the Nazis. You know, what, what is the obsession with Eastern Europe? Because it's not just to, to get at Jewish populations. There's a imperialist and colonialist sort of attitude. And then also the Soviet period, right? Which is, I think, sort of something that's been driven um, in, in recent years by uh, the work of Timothy Snyder, depending on, it doesn't really matter where, where one stands on that, um, but he certainly has highlighted the importance of that period. Um, and then, you know, to get to your, I think your question, one of the things that I think is really important and illustrative in Eastern Europe is, um, I think that maybe there, there are two or three things or a hundred, but um, one is that, yes, it definitely is is a place where we can see the incremental and developmental steps that lead us to a uh, a physical solution to the so-called Jewish question rather than a, a territorial one. In other words, it, to murder rather than to try to displace populations. And we can sort of see and track how that policy evolves and see that there are people, uh, Nazis, you know, trying in different ways to solve it and are having relative, uh, you know, successes and failures, you know, based on a variety of different aspects. Um, and uh, so that's one thing I think is an important uh, area of discussion. The second is, you know, the, the, the nature of collaboration um, in the East is, I think, fundamentally different than it is in the West, um, both at a local individual scale, as well as at a, in some cases, at a governmental scale. Um, and so it, it is a different it is a different way to look at how non-Jews um, participated in the Holocaust, again, as collaborators, but also as rescuers. I mean, I think these things are important to, to always highlight together. Um, but yeah, there, you know, there are the steps that we, we can sort of illustrate. Um, and then the lessons learned, if you will, um, from the euthanasia program, but also from the beginnings in Eastern Europe are then applied to create a system that then is applied to all of Western Europe as well. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess one thing that I was hinting at, and I didn't say explicitly is that if you look at, and Christopher Browning has done a good job of this, but a lot of people have, if you look at the various policies that were instituted, some they seem to have come from Hitler himself and others from his lieutenants, that they, they seem kind of hesitant, and halting and they're opportunistic. And the one that always blows my mind every time I read about it is the Madagascar plan mm -hmm. that actually it, it held on for a long time. And, and I just don't think people realize this. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's often something I think that, that sometimes, and, and again, you know, there is there, or at least there was sort of a, a, a more um, clearly divided line between people who thought that sort of everything was planned from the beginning and people who thought that it was, um, you know, sort of an ad hoc developmental process. This is the intentionalist functionalist um, debate. But one of the things that, you know, that when you really sort of drill down into the Madagascar plan is that it's it's not window dressing. There are entire departments trying to, to sort this out, you know, and, you know, Hans Frank, who is the administrator of Poland, even mentions, you know, hey, well, you know, we don't have to do certain ghettoization processes right now because there's going to be this Madagascar plan. and you know, so, you know, that's one great example of this. And um, by being able to sort of, one of the things that I think is interesting in, in tracing these developments is 
you have this intersection of of the ideology and the high level thought, and then you have people like Hans Frank again, who, you know, one of the plans is to basically dump all the Jews of Western Europe into a reservation, um, intentionally called that, in Poland. And Hans Frank essentially has a not in my backyard sort of attitude because he's trying to also create some uh, sort of a, a German colonial utopia, and he he fights it. On that level. So even people that sort of agree about what should be done in general have sort of a, well, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want all these people dumped on my shoulders to be responsible for. Um, and so you have these these various plans and policies that never quite come to fruition, which sort of then lead us to, um, you know, what we would, I guess, refer to as sort of the formal Holocaust or the, you know, the, the extermination uh, portion of the, the larger um, Nazi genocidal project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hardly a straight line, and I'm reminded of another interview I did with Catherine Epstein, who wrote this terrific biography of Otto Kreiser, mm -hmm. who was the head of the Vartigal, I think, or was it? Yeah, that's okay. a fantastic so anyway, book. He, he, it's a good book, because it shows him fighting with pretty much everyone else about what to do with, and it sounds callous to say, his Jews. Like, he didn't want them there, but nobody else would take them, and this causes him endless headaches. He doesn't want to kill them. He doesn't have the mechanism. To, he doesn't have the ability to kill them. He doesn't even have the allowance to kill them. But it, you can just see that that they are at cross purposes all the time because they're all trying to do different things. And th this solution is kind of cobbled together. And it's and kind of independently of of one another. And, the, and when, I, when I say that, I'm thinking explicitly about one of the most fascinating parts of your book. And I think about the Holocaust in general, and that is the role of the Einsatzgruppen that they they don't start as essentially an exterminationist, I guess, entity, but they become one. Can you talk a little bit about them? I mean, they were around even during the invasion of Czechoslovakia, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, there's a, that's a that's a great point to bring up. Um, you know, they have a, a there's a I guess several iterations, if you will, of of these Einsatzgruppen, right? Um, and you mentioned that the Czech version there's there's uh, and in this sense, they're really sort of almost these, almost exactly what the term translates to, sort of special, you know, special mission uh, groups or whatnot, um, operational groups. And they they were basically there to go, you know, secure buildings and, you know, f files and records and identify potential enemies. And then the, this sort of evolves in Poland into much more of a, a killing um, a killing mission, but it's a it's a limited killing mission with you know particular um, types of people. So you know, um, uh, nationalists, uh, local leaders, uh, Jewish leaders, um, often Jewish men, but in often in some kind of retaliatory sense. And then you move into the Soviet Union, and I think what's fascinating there is first you know there's this giant expansion. Um, in, in numbers, there is a concerted effort this time to read in the Wehrmacht and other organizations about exactly what these guys are going to be doing, because one of the problems in Poland or one of the sort of hiccups in Poland was uh, some, and again, I don't want to overplay this at all, but but some officers and other folks were surprised and shocked at the brutality of what these people were doing and at, at a very minimum from just sort of a uh you know this is not what we do 
in an honorable sense kind of thing. Um, that is that goes away by the time you get to the invasion of the East. You know that is something that is now cleared up with everyone. The relationships are are laid out on, on paper so that everyone knows, you know, what their responsibilities are regarding these individuals, these groups. Um, and then you have the, the groups themselves, which are are quite interesting. Um, because number one, the leadership, of course, is highly indoctrinated, highly chosen um, uh, for their abilities and for their dedication, but also happens to be incredibly educated. Uh, you know, like most of these guys have PhDs. Many, at least a couple, have two, uh, two, uh, you know, doctoral level degrees, either in law or medicine. Doctor, yeah, I mean, doctor. it's it's kind of <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like kind of amazing, you know, how yeah. educated some of these people are, particularly when they're lawyers, you know. And then you have these the 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 men who are often, at least initially, a a hodgepodge of people drawn from you know a police graduating class or the Waffen SS or whatever, and they are not necessarily um, chosen for any particular ideological fervor. Um, but they're just sort of the manpower that's available. And then they um, are involved in this killing process that itself escalates. Um, and, you know, initially it's already escalated from Poland to include all Jewish men of military age, as well as communist functionaries, um, as well as uh, commissars and red army. Um, but, but one of sort of the, the signposts, if you will, of the, the changing winds towards an exterminationist, viewpoint is again in the Soviet Union or in the occupied Eastern Eastern Europe um, where you start to see um, in the late summer um, of or even in July really of, of 41 um, that these groups begin to kill um, Jews of all ages of all genders um, sort of indiscriminately um, and you know one of the ways and it's also interesting about how we try to figure this out is you can almost plot where Himmler is traveling. And after he has conversations with people, uh, for example, in Bialystok, he has a conversation, uh, you know, and then immediately thereafter the, the demographics of the tar of the victims begins to change. Um, and so what we're seeing, I think there is a, a verbal transmission of, of this change in policy, because after the sort of, uh, embarrassment of the euthanasia program where um, the German population, at least some of them, you know, rise up and say this is not appropriate and Hitler is sort of forced to back down and he sort of had signed off on that on paper. Um, but that time we get to the Soviet Union, he doesn't sign off on things on paper anymore. So, you know, that's why we sort of have this, but what, um, I mean, Chris has pointed this out in, in his in his work, um, but we have what seems to be a, a more informal or verbal transmission that this is what's going to be happening. Um, and, and that's one of the signposts because, you know, the, one of the um, debates uh, that goes on that I think is still important is, is, is how do we know when the shift was made from a territorial to a um, physical, you know, solution. And one of the ways to, to look at that, it's it's a compilation of sort of circumstantial evidence that the preponderance of the evidence, you know, can lead one to to date it at this particular time period, and and the Einsatzgruppen is one piece of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I read um, Browning's entire book. <clears throat> Pardon me. 
on the uh, the subject of the Genesis, uh, where he actually tracks Hitler's movements like day by day and who he was meeting with. I think it's just called the Origins of the Final Solution. Do you remember what it's called? I think that's what it's called. But anyway, what is the consensus now about when that switch? Was uh, I mean, it depends on it, it depends on who you ask. Um, there are still people uh, who, again, as I said, I think the the black and white feature of this debate has gone away. So we're we're we are definitely in a gray, you know, area between. You know, at the far extreme, this is just something that sort of ad hoc developed, and the other extreme that this is something that was planned from the beginning. Um, so there are lots of different um, answers to the question. The one that that I find most compelling, and I think is also the one that that Chris presents in Origins of Final Solution, is that sometime in the late summer, early fall of 1941 is when the decision was made. Um, when it seemed like the German army was was going from victory to victory, um, and there was no re- reason to sort of wait until the end of the war to deal with this because it looked like it could be done now. Um, and some of the key moments with, that I kind of try to highlight in the book, um, you know, you start to see again this change in the Einsatzgruppen behavior. Uh, you see the orders begin to go out for the creation. Um, and construction of what will become the Operation Reinhardt extermination centers. Um, you see, uh, and this is something that, again, this is uh, something that uh, Chris Browning points out. You know, in October, uh, all immigration of Jews from German controlled territory is um, forbidden, you know, and that is a pretty clear sign if you if you read it that way that. You know, why let these people now leave if the plan is to have to round them up all and kill them at some point? Whereas before, you know, you know, Eichmann's first job was to try to drive as many Jews as possible out of Vienna and out of Austria and make and make them immigrate. So once that changes, you know, um, and then by December, I think, 8th of 1941, you have Kelmno already uh, using gas fans to exterminate people. So, um you know what I find most compelling is is that period of time. There are others who, you know, will date it a little farther uh, into the future, into 1942. Um, but the, the 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 explanation that I find most compelling is uh, sometime summer fall of 1941. Mm-hmm. I remember one particular in- instance, and I don't recall exactly the details, but it, it involved. And I remember thinking it was very telling and strange and involved the sending of a train full of German Jews. I think they were from like Hamburg or something to, I want to say Lithuania. It might've been to Riga uh, in Latvia the, as well. It may have been to Riga and, and it was, it was in 41 and it was very early and people got in trouble oh. for it. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not familiar with that, um, that particular episode. Yeah, but anyway, essentially what happened was it was in 41 and somebody got over enthusiastic and sent a trainload full of German Jews to Riga, essentially to be killed. Uh, and, and I remember somebody got in a lot of trouble for it. And Hitler personally was involved with this. And he was really pissed that this had happened. And I, again, I wish I could remember the details of it. It was very telling because you could see that the various levels of the administration were not on the same page about what was supposed to happen and the timetable and how and these kinds of things. I think the train might have even been sent back. Maybe one of our listeners can, <laughs> can, can, can enlighten me about this, but it was a very early instance. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think, I, I was going to say, I, I, I think that that is, um, 
though I'm not familiar with the, the details of that episode, you know, again, I think it's a an interesting way to highlight what the East meant in a certain sense, you know, because uh, certainly, you know, Hitler wants to get rid of the Jews. You know, there's no de- debate about that. Um, but he's also very sensitive to public opinion, you know, and to, to when the time may be right to to start doing this sort of thing, um, and which would explain, you know, why he's angry about this. And, and even then you have sort of weird dissonance even uh, later on when German Jews start arriving in Minsk and the, the Nazi administrator there wants them to, even though they're going to be killed, he wants them to be treated better because they are in fact German Jews and they're different than the Aust- the Ostjuden. Whereas in Eastern Europe, you know, these kinds of experiments and um, I mean, the, ex- the experiments just in terms of, of killing methods are in- incredibly gruesome, um, but they're able to sort of take place there so that everything is set up when the timing then becomes right in Western Europe to begin deporting Western European Jews to these places. So you have, for example, the Einsatzgruppen, once they become stationary, uh, you know, they begin killing Eastern European Jews in Eastern European ghettos to make space for Western European Jews, German Jews and elsewhere uh, to come to these places, at least temporarily. You know, so the, there is a connection there um, that where the East plays an important role. Then there's a further connection because, and I don't know where I got this, probably from your book, but they were resettling Volkdeutsche in, in in Eastern European cities and they needed flats for them. So they were ejecting the Jews there and sending them off, but to where? This is what Greiser, Greiser, I remember Greiser was just totally out of his mind about this because he needed space for the Germans, he didn't have it, and he just sent these Jews someplace, but he didn't know where, and Frank didn't want them. And so, I mean, again, it shows like it's all interconnected and very complicated. Go ahead. Absolutely, no, and there's there's some there's some really fantastic scholarship out there on on these attempts to essentially colonize Eastern Europe with either Volksdeutsche or either even Reichsdeutsche. Um, you, you know, ger- uh, for listeners, you know, um, Germans who live in Germany or these ethnic Germans that live in Eastern Europe and have, you know, for a very long time and and provide the kernel of this sort of myth that, you know, the Germans built Eastern Europe and anything good in Eastern Europe um, was created by the Germans to the extent that you have this really fantastically ironic travel guide created by essentially the, you know, major travel guide writer in Germany where they describe certain Polish towns and wherever there's a nice church or something, it was clearly built by the Germans um, at some point. Um, but to get back to sort of the, the, you know, there, there is this massive demographic engineering project of which the Holocaust and, and the Jewish um, deportations is part of it, but it's also part of this larger and Himmler of course is especially uh, intrigued and, and, and dedicated to this idea of resettling these people. Um, but it's just, almost a bridge too far because there's so many people and so many moving parts that you have examples of, of Volksdeutsche, you know, who have been pulled from someplace in Eastern Europe who essentially end up living in a refugee camp for most of the war because they can't find a place to put them or they can't get them there or, you know, and, and that's not for lack of trying because a lot of these provincial Nazi um, officials are vying to be the first one to really, Germanize their particular region, but they're, you know, again, like as you mentioned, there are all these competing sort of real world realpolitik uh, 
reasons that that are uh, I think um, not necessarily always in line with the the larger abstract Nazi goal, which is again another important reason to kind of look at things at a local level. Mm-hmm. Let's return for just a second to the uh, question of when the Holocaust was. I want to say organized when it was decided that they were going to make a concerted and unified effort to do this. Now, how does the Vansay conference fit into that according to current scholarship? I think some people who studied Holocaust would know what the Vansay and explain what that is. How does it, how do, how do historians now talk about the Vansay conference? Sure. So there's a, um, in Jan- on January twentieth, nineteen forty-two, there is a a meeting in a um, in a villa um, on the Wannsee, which is a really beautiful lake on the outskirts of Berlin, and essentially it brings together um, very important Nazi uh, representatives of sort of all of the government agencies that would be involved in. Um, the, the deportation of European Jews, as well as elements of the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. Um, and it's led by Heydrich um, and Adolf Eichmann is also there. And one of the misconceptions I think uh, that, that many people, or at least those who are familiar with it have, is that this was the moment, right? When these people meet together to decide that, okay, now we're going to solve this problem in a, in a physical sense. Um, but really, this meeting had already been had been scheduled. Actually, I believe for December twelfth, if I'm accurate, December twelfth, nineteen forty one, or at least December nineteen forty one, um, and had to be postponed because of December seventh, nineteen forty one, where you know the the Americans enter the war against the Japanese, and Hitler makes the decision to declare war against the Americans. Um, and so there's actually a lot, there's just a lot going on at this moment. And so this meeting has to be postponed because everybody's busy with other things. Um, what's interesting is the, the representatives are usually at this conference are usually like the second to the, the you know, secretary. You know, so Hans Frank sends his representative to this meeting. And what this meeting really becomes and really is, is not a decision of, of whether or not, but a decision of how. And so you have... Um, Individuals, Einsatz group, former Einsatzgruppen folks, you have representatives from the economic um, apparatus, from the legal apparatus, because one of the issues is to determine, you know, who is a Jew and who is a, a first class mixed race and second class mixed race and who gets deported and who doesn't. Um, and representatives from, you know, all the organizations or um, organs of the government that are going to be involved in implementation. Um, and so that's sort of reason number one for this meeting. And then the second reason, uh, which is a little more insidious, but made very clear is Heydrich establishing the authority of the SS, um, and the Reich security main office for, uh, carrying out this final solution. Uh, he wants to make sure everyone knows and agrees that, he is in charge and that the SS are in charge, which is important uh, not only on its face, but for Himmler, um, you know, and his standing within sort of the Hitler's uh, underlings in terms of power, that kind of thing. If, if you're in charge of this particular project, that gives you a, a great deal of 
of power and significance um, for Hitler and in Hitler's inner circle. So that's really what the Vonsei Conference is about. It's it's not a decision point. It's a it's a coordination meeting of sort of how do we how do we go about doing this. Mm-hmm. I want I want to um, touch on one other thing. This has to do with an interview that I did with a guy, and I don't remember his name, who wrote a, a biography of Eichmann, who was there at the Vonsei Conference. It was quite a revelation to me uh, because I feel like I was misled by Hannah Arendt. Um, <laughs> the, can you talk about what people say about Eichmann now? Yeah, and I think um, the banality of evil. You know, I think that uh, that Chris Browning put it, you know most accurately when he said that that Hannah Arendt's theory is not necessarily off. She just picked the wrong guy. Um, you know, certainly and, and and Raul Hilberg when he talks about the the rail with the Deutsche Bahn, you know, those exact those are great examples of sort of the banality of evil. Um, in Claude Lanzmann's Showa when he interviews the railway official who is basically talking about special trains in the same context as special trains that that an organization would book for a holiday, you know. Um, that's the banality of evil, right? The desk murderer, the guy that sits at a desk and doesn't really, you know, have any particularly strong beliefs one way or the other. Unfortunately, Eichmann, you know, tried to um, to curate his memory or his appearance as being one of those folks. Um, but we have recordings, even and and um, comments from him that indicate otherwise. Uh, and I think one of them, and I'm not going to try to directly quote it, but it's something to the effect of I think he said it when he was in South America that you know. He would gladly jump into his grave knowing that he had uh, helped to kill X million um, Jews, right? So, you know, he is not your, um, I'm just doing this for purely sort of careerist or, you know, bureaucratic reasons. Uh, you know, he is he is a guy that's ideologically motivated. Um, and so Alrent is sort of, I think, viewed as missing the mark by pinning her theory on him as the as the example, um, though I think the theory itself still has has relevance. But again, it all depends. You really have to know about the person and what the person is thinking. Um. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the transition or change in methods of extermination. As you said, initially after June 1941, and I suppose we could go back a little bit further into Poland, they sent in the Einsatzgruppen, and they uh, would often kill Jews under the pretext of them being somehow partisan. Um, this was kind of the code. Yeah, and, it, and it's, right? it's a code that I think, uh, and this is something I, I talked about in, in the first book, um, which becomes much, much, much more powerful and more institutionalized after the invasion of the Soviet Union when they're actually really are partisans and there really are lots of Jews that need to be killed and there needs to be an explanation for this. I think what you often see in Poland um, with the Einsatzgruppen, at least during that, that 39, 40 period before ghettoization begins in, in earnest is um, uh, the murder of Jews as reprisal. Um, and so often you'll have uh, German army units doing this as well. Um, Chestahova is one of the best examples of this, you know, where maybe there was a shot fired, or maybe there, maybe that was a German shot that was fired, or who knows. Um, but Jews are are rounded up and used as um, hostages or reprisal uh, victims to try to 
you know, retaliate and, and, and to cow the local population. Of course, there also are, you know, Jews that are targeted because they are um, com- community leaders or, um, or that sort of thing. Um, but really the, the, the Jew as partisan um, and therefore enemy target um, is something I think that develops much later in, in 1941, once we get in the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that then, because that's really what I'm kind of focused on here, is that they, and, and I'm thinking particularly about uh, the Babayar massacre, because one of the things that I, I kind of knew, but I was reminded by reading your book, is that officially it was a response or a reprisal, because the, the, I guess the Soviets had left what must have been an absolutely enormous bomb in central Kiev that really killed a lot of Germans. Um, but then yeah, go ahead and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, that's something that also is not, I think, you know, necessarily common knowledge. And so it's one of the things that was, was fun to sort of bring out in the book, um, you know, the, the different ways in which these events developed versus kind of how they're remembered. Um, so yeah, the red army um, evacuates Kiev um, and the NKVD the secret police leave behind essentially to use a modern, you know, anachronistic term IEDs um, all over the place. These bombs uh, that are set to go off at, at random times or different times or, or, or can be triggered. And um, a German army, a high level German army headquarters happens to um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, choose to set up in one of these buildings, um, which then blows up um, and kills uh you know, some generals, um, as well as lots of other folks. And of course, if, if generals are killed, then that's you know, a really big deal. Um, and the German, it's actually the German army that turns to the Einsatzgruppen and the SS and suggests um, that Jews should be killed as, as a reprisal action. Um, and, and then it also provides, it provides certain elements to help with the logistics of, uh, of this operation, you know, to include sort of the engineers to help um, dig and bury and things like this. Um, but then certainly, you know, this is the, it is the largest single or largest open air mass shooting uh, single day sort of event with, I think, uh, 33,000 some Jews of Kiev being murdered. Um, and it's the Einsatzgruppen and, and the police that carry it out for the most part. And they're certain, certainly happy to do that. Um, but it was, the 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 timing and the circumstances behind it um, are sort of directly related to the war um, and to you know this this request by the the military, which is another thing that I try to highlight in the book um, that I think is important for all of us that that teach this topic, which is that one can't really teach the history of World War II sort of in a vacuum from the history of the Holocaust. And vice versa. You know, these, these things are connected um, in in a myriad of ways um, from simply who's occupying what terrain when to how the war is going to things like Bobby Yar, where you have individuals interacting and causing these, these kinds of events to take place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I find that a particularly revealing instance, because I encountered Bobby R. by reading a book by, I think his name's Kuznetsov. What is his name? 
I don't, I really feel embarrassed that I don't remember, but it's a, it's a count of Babiar. It's a famous Soviet novel, actually. Um, and it doesn't mention this fact, of course. I mean, maybe the author didn't know this. That is the kind of prehistory of it and the attack in Kiev. But it's, it's, a, it's an important thing to remember when thinking about the Holocaust at that moment. But pretty shortly thereafter, at least within a couple of months, it's decided, I don't know who decides it, and I'd like you to tell us, that shooting is not the way to go. That is uh, what's now, I think, called the Holocaust by bullets is going to fade away, and they're going to choose another way to commit genocide. Can you talk a little bit about how they decided that and what they did in the way of experiments? Yeah, I mean, so this is actually, there's, I think there's actually um, two really important elements that you're you're hinting at here. Um, one is is sort of how this plays into the the future development of uh, of the final solution, um, and the other is you know what what happens to this Holocaust by bullets, um, and so uh, to sort of touch with touch on the first element, um, there is a a very clear and very um, obvious even in the archival records that remain recognition by Himmler and others that um, this process of murdering people, you know, one by one, uh, face to face, um, or, you know, back in close proximity is destroying the killers psychologically. Um, And I don't say that out of sympathy. I just say that out of the realization that the vast majority of Einsatzgruppen killers and most Nazis were not psychologically clinically abnormal right they, they are, these are you know normal human beings from the from a mental health standpoint um which means because they're not sociopathic because they have the ability to empathize even if they don't want to even if it's subconscious um that they are then put under an intense amount of emotional stress and we see this even with himmler who visits a shooting in in minsk in august of 1941 and by various accounts um, either throws up or is certainly says, I'm hurry this up, get this over with quickly and wants to get out of there as soon as he can. Um, another interesting example is a guy named Boxelevsky, who was the higher SS and police leader for Belarus, you know, who was presiding over the mass killing of Jews and is evacuated <laughs> for a moment um, because of hemorrhoids. Um, but while he's undergoing treatment for that, his doctor writes in his chart that he's suffering from flashbacks and um, all of the classic signs of PTSD. And this is a guy that is a, is a true believer, as is Himmler, which again gets to this point of, of this very messy, very um, tangible kind of killing not being um, ideal. And Himmler himself says, you know, we need to we need to take care of people who are essentially psychologically unfit for duty as a result of this and not sort of make fun of them and recognize that, you know, this was this is a terrible thing for them, which which fits into a larger interesting narrative where the the, the Nazis would frequently try to paint themselves as the victims here because, oh, we have to do this this terrible thing for the good of our country, et cetera. Um, and so while this this sort of thinking is going on. There are individuals um, in different places geographically who are trying to come up with a, a 
you know, and I'm using air quotes here, a better way of, of doing this um, from both a logistical standpoint um, as well as a methods standpoint. And the logistical solution was, why are we sending killers to Jewish populations which are spread out when we can bring Jews to a central location? Um, and so then that's where we get sort of the, the beginning of, of the idea of an extermination center connected to a rail network and also helps to determine why that these camps are in Poland, um, because that is where at least three million Jews are. Um, you also have various experiments with methods, um, and these can, these can get pretty ugly. Um, one of them was the use of explosives. Uh, um, just you know, blowing people up, and that had predictably horrendous results. And from the perspective of the Nazis, was not particularly efficient either. Um, and then what you have that I think is really interesting um, is a connection between earlier German policies, Nazi policies, and then the the Holocaust, if you will. Um, and this is the fact that the first Germans to be gassed, uh, the first people to be gassed by the Nazis are predominantly not Jews, but they are Germans handicapped um, in the T4 program. And once the T4, T4, T4 program, excuse me, is at least forced underground and sort of decentralized, it continues on throughout the war, but it's decentralized. You essentially have a group of people who have a particular set of skills and are out of work. Um, these are people that know how to use gas. They know that gas works uh, to kill people in large numbers. Um, they also are familiar with sort of the subterfuge of transporting people uh, to killing centers um, and how to manage that. And they are predominantly, in, in many ways, the people that are then sent to staff these extermination centers in Eastern Europe um, because you know they have this, they have these abilities. So. Some of the, the big names, people like Franz Stangl, the commandant of Sobibor and later Treblinka, what started out his, his Nazi career as a um, sort of a guard policeman in the T4 program, you know, in one of these killing hospitals. Um, and so you have a, a variety of solutions uh, being proposed. There's an experiment in um, Berlin uh, using gassing and then later experiments in Auschwitz in 1941 using Z, Z clone B, the, uh, the delousing agent. Um, and so all of these things are happening at the same time that the Nazis are seeking to um, find a better, a better way, a better process to do this. Um, and so that's sort of the answer to the methods piece. But one of the things I also think that um, is important to raise, and, and I think that the book raises um, is that the Holocaust by bullets doesn't end. And this is something that I think um, is perhaps a misconception that sometimes um, creeps into uh, the study of the Holocaust, that everything is sort of then replaced by the gas chambers, um, which is not really, the, not really the case. The Einsatzgruppen don't disappear. They're not, re they're not usually assigned to the extermination centers. Um, they become stationary. Um, essentially, they take up a, a a permanent position in a town or a village, depending on the or a city, depending on the size of the unit, and they then become involved in um, in executing ghettos, um, in deportation actions, 
And after the extermination centers closed down, essentially for a want of easily accessible large numbers of victims, and um, when we start to see ghettos being um, exterminated in 1943 and 1944, it becomes again these Einsatzgruppen guys, as well as police, as well as uh, militia, local militia groups, who are doing this. Um, so the Holocaust by bullets never really stops. Um, it just doesn't become the central method. And we have to remember that you know somewhere around one and a half to two million Jews, uh, and that's not including other folks, um, who are murdered are killed in this process before, essentially before the the more systematic industrialized gas chamber um, system begins operation. Mm-hmm. Now, the killing in the gas chambers, and I think the majority of killing occurs in a reasonably short period of time. What period of time is that? Uh, essentially, it's from uh, the early, like a spring of 42 into the spring of 43. It's about a year, 18 months period where these places are functioning. Um, and they're taking in incredibly large numbers of victims um, you know, and they are. If you look at these these places, many of them are tied to large uh, Jewish areas, right? So, uh, you know, Treblinka is tied to Warsaw, um, you know, and um, Belzich and Sobibor, for example, are often tied to Lublin or to Lvov. So, these very large cities um, are providing a lot of the the groups of individuals that are being sent to these places. Um, and as that, as those numbers begin to decline, um, you know these places are, with the exception of Auschwitz um, and Majdanek, though that is now becoming more of a contested uh, discussion of whether or not that's precisely an extermination center or not. But in any case, these other places um, are either shut down in the case of uh, Sobibor, Treblinka, and Belzich, or shut down and then reopened um, in the case of Kelmno for a short period of time. Um, but at a certain point, you know, by mid-1943, you really only have um, Auschwitz and Majdanek as places with gas chambers that are capable of um, at least larger scale killings. And for the most part, it's Auschwitz. So then, you know, any other mass killings that need to take place revert back to the old method of of the pits and the the Einsatz group in forms of shooting. Now, one of the things I, I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about is how, in a sense, uh, I've already said this, Auschwitz has become kind of a symbol for the Holocaust, but actually it wasn't very representative at all of the killing centers or the ways in which Jews were generally killed in 41 through 43. Can you talk a little bit about what made Auschwitz different? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, I think um, misleading terms that, that lots of folks use, and, and I often slip up and use it myself, is this idea of a death camp. Um, you know, to be more precise, we talk about concentration camps, we talk about extermination centers. That's really the big, the big split. And then, of course, within this this larger category of of concentration camps, we can talk about um, slave labor camps, factory camps you know, uh, transit camps, there's a variety of different formats. Uh, the Operation Reinhard camps, so that's Sobibor, Treblinka, and 
Bell's Edge are really, really actually the the industrial model, if you want to take that that metaphor. Um, they're very, very, very small places. And when you visit them today, if you wanted to walk around the perimeter, you know, you could probably do it in half an hour or so. Um, particularly if you visit Belzich, that you know, the it's incredibly small. Um, when Gita Sereni was writing about um, uh, or in about um, Franz Stangl, I don't know, I don't remember which of her interviewees mentioned this, but they they discussed the terrible smallness. And that's a quote of Treblinka: how small it was for you know killing seven hundred fifty thousand people, um, because that was the only function of that of those places. The only people kept alive were those who were essentially involved, Jews who were involved in being forced to assist in the killing process or those that were um, helping to run or not helping, but being forced to assist in the running of the day-to-day running of the camp. Auschwitz um, is sort of the best example of a, of a hybrid camp because really it's it's three separate geographic locations, Auschwitz one, two, and three, one being much more of a prison also the the situ- also the headquarters of the local Gestapo and of a kangaroo court that would sentence and execute um, you know Polish resistors and things like this. You have Auschwitz II, which is um, initially designed to be a giant POW camp for Soviet prisoners of war and later becomes a, a giant forced labor camp within which is the the are the famous crematoria and gas chambers. And then you have, of course, Auschwitz III Monowitz, which is the uh, a giant slave labor factory um, facility. Um, and then Auschwitz and the town of town itself were designed to sort of be this long-term, um, you know, facility that the Nazis were quite proud of. Um, and Himmler was going to have an apartment there, etc. cetera. Um, and there were, plans for a large housing, SS housing community. Um, Paul Jascott has done work on analyzing, you know, what buildings were built, what buildings were planned to be built, but were not built, and what buildings were built in sort of an ad hoc form that were not on on architectural plans, um, and has come to some really interesting conclusions about what this space was meant to be for the Germans. Um, and it was not something to be hidden, you know, whereas the, the other extermination centers are sort of you know, level to the ground and trees are planted and, you know, they were simply instrumental places. Auschwitz is is more than that. Um, and it becomes uh, in many ways the symbol and, and, you know, not, again, this is not a, a competition or Olympics of suffering. It's simply, you know, it's extant, you know, it's liberated extant by the, for the most part, by the Soviets. So it's a, it's a physical reminder that ex- that exists and people can visit um, it certainly is the the apex of the development of the extermination system um, and it it has lots of survivors um, whereas Belzich for example or Kelmno I think has survivors um, in the single digits I think uh, I think that Belzich um, has maybe two to three or four or five confirmed survive. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't people that escaped, but that people that escaped perhaps and survived the war. Whereas, you know, Auschwitz, because of its size, uh, we are fortunate to have lots of survivors who can tell their story. But that also means that that tends to become the narrative. Um, so I think that, that that's one potentially one. And then, of course, you have the very famous folks like uh, Primo Levi, you know, who 
and and Thaddeus Sporowski, who write these phenomenally important works, um, and were you know that that are based on their experiences in Auschwitz. Um, so I think those are some of the reasons why Auschwitz is become sort of the for some the symbol um, of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the chapter Hitler's Eastern Allies? And this, uh, I found this completely fascinating. The different ways in which they dealt with the German desire to kill the Jews and others, and, and it was hardly uniform. I just found it very fascinating that the divergence in kind of responses that these various Eastern European places uh, took. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. This is one of the most, for me, one of was was one of the most uh, interesting chapters to sort of research um, and write. Also, I have to for the audience, you know, for the listeners, explain a couple of things. One is, um, you know, if you get the book, um, the 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 Eastern Allies that I'm calling Hitler's Eastern Allies are Bulgaria, um, Romania, and Hungary. And there, there was a methodology, and why did I choose those three? Because they are, they were independent states um, that remained independent um, and or, or at some level independent. Uh, you know, they, had, they, they kept their existing government um, at least until, for example, in the case of Hungary, until the Nazis literally invaded and, and deposed um, the, the local government um, and had some ability to sort of negotiate and had diplomatic relations. And this also gets into which is something that I should probably mention too, which is um, I define Eastern Europe for the purposes of this book as essentially from the Baltics uh, down to Ukraine, but not including the Balkans and not including Southeastern Europe. Um, and there are some compelling reasons for this. I'm not the first person to to define that. And of course, Eastern Europe itself is in many ways a construction by um, people in Western Europe and has been for, for centuries. Um, but the, the for example, the influence of the Ottoman Empire and all of these things made um, Southeastern Europe something that I, I was in, uh, mindful of not including and also mindful of, of, of folks that can make very good arguments for why it should have been included. Um, but to get back to the allies piece, you know, so one could then argue that, for example, Croatia um, was an ally. Um, but in many ways, Croatia was a, a giant, um, a giant mess. It was a puppet state. It had areas under Italian control, under Croatian nationalist control, under direct German control. And it really had um, none of the autonomy, if you will, that these other three um, existing nation states did. And of course, Poland, you know. While it did have certainly had collaborators, um, certainly had people that assisted the Nazis, um, and even had some organizations like the Blue Police, as Jan Grabowski has shown, um, as a state was not a, a collaborationist state. Um, and then you know Ukraine and the Baltic states are essentially subsumed under German control, which leaves us with if we really want to look at um, at allies. Uh, we look at Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary, um, because the Japanese are also an ally, but they really don't figure in this at all. Um, and what I think is important, or one of the things that's important about, and you've brought up some of this, is that um, because they were allowed to have these this um, 
degree of autonomy, which part of it was based on the fact that, um, with the exception of Bulgaria, um, which didn't send a single soldier to support the German army, um, you know, these areas had things that the Germans needed, whether it was troops or resources. Um, and so it had some level or some room to sort of negotiate, um, at least up to a point, um, how they were going to participate in the Nazi genocidal project and the Holocaust. Um, and so you see some things in common in all three countries. You know, they all were um, part of that interwar trend in Eastern Europe to become sort of right-wing authoritarian states, um, with the exception of Czechoslovakia. Um, they they all had uh, various bones to pick with the results of World War One in terms of territories that they had lost or others had gained, even amongst each other. And so the Nazis had to sort of navigate that piece of who gets what back. Um, and they all had, in a certain sense, their own colonial project in those particular territories. Um, and one of the issues then is what to do with the Jews um, and potentially other ethnic groups that live in these areas that, you know, Hungary or Romania or Bulgaria are trying to incorporate now as, you know, parts of their, the original um, state. And then um, in conjunction with that, each of these states to various degrees viewed um, its own Jews, in other words, like it's the Jews that were citizens of sort of the pre-World War II state um, from a different perspective than it did Jews in territories that it had occupied or had conquered from either the Soviet Union or had been restored by the Nazis from, you know, one of the other of the three states. And so certainly there is a Jews in those areas are treated differently than um, Jews in sort of the home, uh, the home region of these countries. Um, and, and that I think is an interesting, um, an interesting realization to come to, as well as the ways in which some of these states, uh, Romania is a good example, um, imitate uh, what the Nazis are doing, uh, almost to the extent of forming Einsatzgruppen, um, but also are conducting things independently and in, in the ways that they choose to do it. Um, and in some cases, push back against the Germans when they, the Germans are trying to say, you know, hey, hurry up with this. Can you deport your people, um, and they, they for whatever reason, and there are lots of different reasons. Um, many, if not most, of which are not altruistic, but are are reluctant to do that. Um, and so, I think that that um, this particular chapter is is instructive in in showing, you know, the similarities and differences, as well as the room that these countries had to maneuver, um, and and used to maneuver uh, to determine sort of how they were going to to participate or not participate. I want to drill down just a little bit deeper because there are a couple of things in these chapters that I just found really very revealing. And you mentioned uh, just briefly that they, they had territorial ambitions themselves, and particularly um, Bulgaria. I think it's Bulgaria. I'm sorry if I don't remember. But they were they kind of took a chunk of, is it Transnistria? Is that what they took? And then they treated the Jews there differently than their own Jews. But, you know, even if you talk to Russians about Bulgaria, there's even a Russian saying, 
Kudnitsa ni petitsa, Bulgaria ni zagranitsa, which means that Bulgarians and Russians are exactly the same. <laughs> and I just was very interested in these kind of what we would see as a sort of fine distinctions that they make. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that is... Um, you know, it, it's it's also a measure of of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, and uh, you know, there was a recent book uh, that um, that just came out by a guy named Raz Sagal, which is a fantastic book about uh, genocide in the Carpathians um, and in in Carpatho uh, Rus and all these other places that sort of overlap in Romania, Bulgaria, and, and Hungary, and these places. And one of the interesting points that he contends is that anti-Semitism, you know, takes a different form in Eastern Europe and in these particular regions. Um, and so, therefore, you know, the, the monolithic version of the Ostjuden that the Germans have is not the viewpoint that the Bulgarians have. You know, because right, the Bulgarian Jews are very assimilated, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I no, I no Bulgarian Jews yeah. from sort of, you know, the 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 uh, pre-war boundaries of Bulgaria, what we would call sort of the Kingdom of Bulgaria, are ever deported to extermination centers. Um, which is why I bring up, uh, you know, in this chapter, King Boris the Third, you know, the, who is in many ways seen as a hero because of that. Um, but that really wasn't. That's not all of the story. You know, he's he's very anti-Semitic and supports essentially all of these laws that directly mimic the Nuremberg laws and are are are, are put in place in most of these in all of these three countries. Um, you know, but you know, he was sort of one of these guys who was, um, you know, saw what was in the air. And as the war starts going poorly, and again, this is where the war and the Holocaust and the Nazi genocidal project cannot be separated because, you know, had the war been going swimmingly for the for the Nazis, um, there's every likelihood, perhaps, that you know, these Jews who are viewed as Bulgarian Jews or Hungarian Jews or Romanian Jews may very well have been deported, uh, you know, along with everybody else. But um, in the initial period, when you know Transnistria is occupied. Um, and these other areas that are sort of turned over to these uh, to Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria, uh, they view these Jews as as different, uh, you know, as as not citizens and not having the same uh, shared past, even um, and and as people to be deported and removed in the same way that the Germans are trying to remove Poles as well as Germans or as well as Jews um, from areas that they're trying to to colonize themselves. Um, and so I think that's a partial explanation of, you know, how uh, these different populations, Jewish populations in Eastern Europe, particularly in these three regions are treated um, differently. Right. So Hungarians, for example, view these uh, view Jews in what is now sort of um Western Ukraine as Galician, you know, or as, as Polish or something, you know, and so that's they're not they're foreign, um, even though they're even though the the Hungarians are claiming these areas as Hungarian lands and as of having been Hungarian lands forever, um, the Jews there are considered foreign, and so they don't fall under what little protection there is for um, sort of native Jews, if you will, of these regions. Yeah, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about because this is one of these extraordinary revealing episodes that really kind of 
whenever I hear about it or think about it, it kind of destroys my monolithic view of the Holocaust. And that is this sort of final spasm where some hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews are sent to their death in Auschwitz. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seemed to me like it was almost over. And then there it was again. Right. I mean, this is a great, uh, another great example of sort of why these these sort of more local or or, or uh, transnational histories I think are important because um, so Hungary <laughs> I always find this amusing Hungary's you know leader during this period of time is a guy named Admiral Horthy so a landlocked state you know is, <laughs> is run by an admiral I mean of course this dates back to yeah. the Austro-Hungarian Empire you yeah. know that kind of thing right. but anyway um, and Horthy is is not a a fan of the Jews he's not uh, you know. Um, an ally of the Jews. He's also not necessarily a a fervent anti-Semite any more than someone of his conservative aristocratic background um, would have been normally. And um, you know, he Hungary is a relatively strong supporter of of the Nazis. They they contribute large numbers of troops um, to the war uh, against the Soviet Union, and they. They suffer huge losses um, in doing so, particularly at Stalingrad. Um, and so, again, here we have the war, you know, interjecting itself into the Holocaust. Um, it, be, you know, it becomes very clear with with the fall of Stalingrad, with the fall of Mussolini, um, you know, that uh, the war is not going to go the way that of of Nazi allies. That it's not going to be a good thing to be an ally of the Nazis. And so, Horthy. Um, sort of starts to look for ways out of that, um, some kind of possible negotiated surrender, um, particularly to the Allies, uh, particularly to the Western Allies, because he he knows that the Soviets are going to be very very harsh on him, um, and uh, the Nazis are picking up on this, of course, because they have officials in in Hungary. And, um, you know, they, they're continuing to push for the removal of Jews from Hungary proper. Um, and Horthy is, is trying to delay, partially because um, he wants to try to negotiate a surrender and knows that continuing to participate in this, in this process is not going to be helpful. Um, the Allies, interestingly, this is one of the areas in which the Allies uh, we can reasonably say, you know, impacted the Holocaust is, you know, they're broadcasting that uh, to Hungary that, you know, we know what's going on. We know who these, who certain people are that are participating in this and you better not do this. Um, you know, they are, they are bombing uh, Budapest. Um, and so it's, it's very clear that, you know, that the, the Holocaust and participation in the Holocaust is an area of importance, um, or is it at least a bargaining chip, I think is the way to put it. Um, and so, you know, long story short, um, you know, Horthy, who is again, not a, a rescuer of Jews, but also, um, is not someone that is necessarily prepared to hand them all over to be exterminated, um, delays and delays and delays. And then um, when it becomes clear that he's really trying to get out of the war, um, the Nazis who already had people there, uh, you know, as liaisons and whatnot, um, invade. Um, and they invade and they install a government that is, you know, very far right extremist, perfectly happy to 
participate in the extermination of Jews. And they send Eichmann um, as the deportation expert. And this is the period in July of 44, where you have uh, a little over 400,000 Jews um, sent to Auschwitz. And it's the one of the periods of peak um, apparitions at Auschwitz, uh, day and night sorts of things, because these this large number of of Jews is murdered um, in a very short period of time. Um, but it's because the Germans themselves have to sort of come in and, and do it themselves. Um, and then, you know, very shortly thereafter, Hungary falls to the Red Army and, and Horthy and, and, and all of that is sort of, is, is over at that point. But, you know, there was enough time because the Germans had the Nazis had practiced this enough that once they were able to have unfettered access, um, they were able to, um, you know, to to make this happen, which is why you have this again, sort of as you mentioned, this last burst of of killing that takes place. I don't know. It kind of puts the lie to the notion that it wasn't a top priority for at least certain sections of the. Nazi regime because this is late in the war and they're losing badly and they don't have anything to spare <laughs> and they're investing resources. Yeah, I mean, and and this I think leads to the an interesting question, the one that I I haven't seen a lot of compelling evidence, um, but you know, some people will make this argument that um, oh, the, you know, the Holocaust is is so important to the Nazis because it's it detracts resources from the front. And that might be one of the reasons, you know, that the Nazis don't do so well militarily is that they're, they're losing these resources that they're spending on the Jews. Um, and I haven't really seen any compelling evidence that, that the resources devoted to the, to the Holocaust detracted effectively from the military efforts and cause any negative outcomes in that regard. And I also would, I think uh, the way that I would respond to that, sort of question is that it's, it's, it's sort of a, um, a non-question. I mean, the, the, the extermination of the Jews is part and parcel of the war itself. And so I think for a lot of Nazi functionaries or, or people that are making decisions, um, they wouldn't really see a difference. Uh, you know, if, if they're truly ideologically motivated and they view the Jewish people as a, a fundamental existential threat to Germany, you know, they sort of feel like they're fighting the war just as much as as someone at the front. Um, so, I think that's part of the explanation for why this goes on so long. Um, and then there's also, I think, probably just again the, the blatant anti-Semitism of, or we may still lose the war, but we can still kill, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Jews if we are able to 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 carry this out. Um, so, I think those those things are obviously then deeply connected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I quite agree with all that. I, I do. I, I, don't, I don't see how, I'm not seeing, as you say, not a lot of compelling evidence that the, the Holocaust really cost uh, the Germans tremendously on the battlefield or even in terms of logistics. Uh, it, I, I could be totally wrong about this, but doesn't seem to me it was a terribly important thing. Um, let, let me, uh, we've taken a huge amount of your time, but I just find this absolutely fascinating. I, I, th- I think we were missed not to talk a little bit about Jewish resistance. Could you uh, give us some of your yeah, thoughts on um, that? Yeah, I mean, I thought, uh, you know, and obviously this isn't, again, any 
any stroke of brilliance, but I wanted to certainly highlight in this book as well, um, you know, Jewish resistance um, and the fact that, you know, Jews did not go like lambs to the slaughter, which bringing us full circle is a, is at least a somewhat of an argument that, uh, that Hannah Arendt makes, you know, that, that gets her in trouble as well, that, you know, that, that, um, that the Jewish community was complicit, the Judenrats were complicit and that, you know, Jews didn't fight back enough, et cetera. And so I wanted to, to show, um, again, in, in a, in a volume that covers a lot of different topics, this one is obviously very, very important. And, um, you know, I, I tried to begin that chapter with trying to define resistance, um, because, um, you know, there is and has been a, a wide um, spectrum of debate about what constitutes resistance. Um, even Hilberg, you know, sort of the, the founding great historian of Holocaust studies, tended much more towards the it only counts as resistance if you're really are fighting physically against uh, the Nazis. And then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you have um, historians like Yehuda Bauer who make the argument that if the Nazis aim is to murder all Jews, then simply existing um, is a form of resistance. Um, and so what I then tried to do, which I, and, and I think what is um, particularly enlightening is that um, one doesn't have to choose uh, between those things. And so what I tried to do was show um, a variety of forms of resistance. Um, and, you know, just to start with the armed resistance, obviously we have the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Everyone knows about that. What we don't, what a lot of people don't know, is that this was not as isolated an event as people may have thought. Um, you know, the the Holocaust Museum in D.C. in part of its research estimates that um, there were uprisings, armed uprisings, in approximately twenty five percent of Eastern European ghettos. Um, you know, this is not a thing that that is just Warsaw. Like Jews um, all over the place did this. Um, Jews, even in the extermination centers um, at Treblinka, certainly at Treblinka, certainly at Auschwitz, certainly at Sobibor, um, there's compelling evidence that there was at least one armed attempt at revolt at Belzich. So that's four out of the six, um, and that's just armed resistance, you know. So, and th- and those are in the worst of the worst places, um, where the you have the most limited freedom of action, the most limited access to help and to weapons, etc. Um, and then I also um, took a moment to talk about um, some of these partisan groups um, in detail, um, you know, like the, the uh, 50th Brigade in um, Belarus, as well as um, some of the purely Jewish partisan groups, as well as Jews that fought with the Soviets. And so we, you know, we have this armed piece, um, but we also have, I think, really, imp- it's very important to highlight, um, you know, sort of what I call the sort of social um, cultural resistance, um, where simply by uh, maintaining one's dignity um, or practicing religious um, observances, uh, all of which are illegal, teaching um, is illegal. Um, you know, all of these things, attempts at dehumanizing people, um, you know, having classical music concerts um, are all forms of resistance and even within the Jewish community. And again, this is, I think, another important element to highlight just as it is on the perpetrator side, you know, there are very different viewpoints about resistance within the Jewish community at the time. And even, and not just the obvious one of, should we 
have armed resistance or should we not? Even, um, you know, when uh, you have these musical concerts in Warsaw, there are Jews in Warsaw who are saying, this is, this is almost blasphemous. You know, we are living in a cemetery and you're having concerts, you know, and this is, this is disrespectful and just an awful thing. And then the other people are saying, no, this is, this is trying to maintain normal life and giving people a chance to sort of escape at least for an hour or two from their, um, from their surroundings. Um, and then of course, you know, I, I always want to highlight, um, you know, the two, well, two things. One is of course, to get back to the role of the Judenrats, um, which I, I go over, it's, I, I try to discuss at length. Um, even they are different, um, vastly different and diverse throughout, throughout Eastern Europe, as are the um, physical configurations and natures of the ghettos themselves. You know, some, some ghettos don't even have walls or fences or anything. Some are like Warsaw and have, you know, the, the massive, massive sto- stone or brick walls. Um, they differ in size. Um, you know, the Warsaw ghetto had more Jews in it than in all of France. Um, the Lviv ghetto had more Jews in it than the Netherlands. Um, but some ghettos were, you know, very, very small and had 100 people in them. And all the Judenrats um, behaved slightly differently, as did their leaders. And so I, I talk about the leaders in um, several of the larger ghettos and how they all approached this, uh, you know, as Lawrence Langer puts it, these choiceless choices they're faced with um, in different ways. Um, and so you have, for example, the worst of the worst, um, Heim Rumkowski, in many ways, is, is viewed that way because he certainly was an egomaniac and um, he was preferential sometimes and who got deported and was very complicit with the Nazis. Um, but, you know, one, uh, at least one historian has made the argument that, you know, you know, had, had the war ended a, a few months earlier, um, he, he would have actually saved the most people in, in Woods um, compared to everybody else, you know, and so, you know, and then would we think of him the same way? Um, but to get back to the, just to the resistance piece, I always want to highlight the, the, the diversity of viewpoints, but also um, for me, one of the, my heroes, I suppose, of the Holocaust in terms of resistance, um, and this may be a story that your listeners are, are familiar with or not, um, but it's a man named Janusz Korszak, um, who uh, was a Polish Jew um, in Warsaw. But before the war, he uh, was a child psychologist. He wrote a lot of um, sort of scholarly works and, and, and popular works about children and about how children have rights, you know, and how children have, you know, should be treated as sort of thinking human beings and, you know, parenting issues and things like this. And he ran several orphanages as well before the war. And so, um, as happened to many folks, uh, Jewish uh, uh, victims of the Holocaust, when he was in the Warsaw Ghetto, he also ran um, orphanages there. And as it became increasingly clear that he, this that the population of Warsaw was going or the Warsaw Ghetto was going to be liquidated, um, many of his friends, non-Jewish uh, Polish friends on the outside, uh, came to him and, and offered him multiple opportunities to escape and to be hidden because he was a very famous person that many um, Poles knew and respected and loved and wanted to save him from what they knew was coming. And he refused. And when the time came um, and the all the children were put on the list for deportation to Treblinka, 
Janusz Korszak, as well as um, his teachers and nurses who don't get as much um, sort of publicity, but were there with him and made the same decision, um, you know, dressed the children up, uh, you know, told them they were going on a, essentially on a field trip in the country. And there are multiple survivor uh, accounts and, and diary accounts and things of people in the ghetto who remember him and his um, little parade of children singing and he's holding their hands as they're going to the trains. Um, and then, you know, they end up, uh, I think sometime in, in August in Treblinka where they all are killed. And for me, um, particularly, you know, as a, as a father, a relatively new father, um, you know, uh, I think that's one of the most brave and important elements of resistance, um, that, that, you know, that I can point to, even though he didn't save a single person, you know, he didn't kill a single Nazi, but the fact that, you know, he sacrificed himself simply to try to keep the children as oblivious as possible to what was happening and as unafraid as possible until the very last moment. Um, and that he would go with them, um, to me is a, is a very, very, very powerful, um, a powerful action uh, that he took. And he is, in fact, as a coda to that, there's only one individual name written um, in the memorial at Treblinka, and that's him. Everything else is communities. All the stones have communities that were murdered there. There's a special stone simply to him um, in recognition of, of this particular moment. So I, I think that's really important, too. I've not heard that story before. The, the act of resistance, which has, and I think about it a lot, has the most resonance for me, if I could just take a second, is uh, Emmanuel Ringelblum, uh, who, for those of you who don't know, you can listen to an interview I did with Sam Kassov about Emmanuel Ringelblum, and he was a historian, and uh, he was in, I, I don't know if it was the Witch Ghetto or the Warsaw Ghetto, I can't remember which. Yeah, And, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, and my job is to document what's going on, so that later generations can understand what happened. And, and he probably certainly knew that he was going to die and everyone around him was going to die, but he continued in that professional capacity, um, collecting information, kind of vast amounts of it. He put together a team of people who did this under the most dire circumstances and kind of remained dedicated to their life's work and calling. And uh, yeah, he eventually died. I think he was killed. I, again, I don't remember the details of it, but I, I I, I just, uh, as historians go, that's, that's a yeah, absolutely, that's a, that's and, and um, pretty good example. And uh, <laughs> you know, Sam Cassell's book, I think it's called uh, "Who Will Write Our History," um, is is a fantastic book for that because you know it it definitely shows that um, some people, for whatever reason, you know that that they, you know, the thing they did the thing that they could do. And, and, and if it's being a doctor, they were a doctor. And if it was being a nurse, it was a nurse. And if it was being an historian, you know, that's what he did. And he, um, he uh, even thinks about this, you know, and there's a part, there's a, a quote in the book where he, he writes about this and he says, you know, my hand shakes as I write these words, who knows of a future historian reviewing this list will not add my name, Emmanuel Ringelblum, you know, and that to me was also, you know, very, um, very poignant. And he has a similar story to, you know, the coda for his is that he escapes the ghetto and is, is protected in hiding 
until he's betrayed. And then he's sent to the Paviak prison, prison in, in Warsaw, which is very infamous. And again, um, fellow prisoners there offered to let him to help him escape, but they couldn't help his family. And so he decided that he would stay with his family um, and eventually is is shot. And so and, and again, it, as you point out, it wasn't just him. It, you know, he got sociologists and economists and and cultural people to, you know, create um, this this history that was then buried in milk jugs of um, of which amazingly, uh, I think I forget how many were found. Um, they have not all been found yet, um, but I think three or four um, were found and have provided us uh, as historians later just an incredible um, amount of knowledge about you know the, the conditions in the ghetto and the, from the Jewish perspective, from people who are no longer here, and then also serves that very important purpose of memory and and. These people are now remembered. We, you know, we know who these people are. They are not anonymous victims. They are people who have who now exist in history, and we can hear their words. And those are only two stories, and I'm sure that there are thousands. Oh, absolutely, and thousands, yep. and thousands that we just don't know anything about. Yeah, I, I think that resistance in that sense was much more widespread than we tend to think about. And uh, I think about uh, Ringelblum a lot. I really do. Like when I sit and write, I think, you know, look at the circumstances under which that guy worked and his dedication to his profession and, and, and to the future. It's, it's just a, 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 a Waitman, there's something yeah, in my I mean, eye. <laughs> and, and, you know, he also, it's really, he also would actually go and try to really intervene and, and, and he'd try to pull people out of the line and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? exactly. And uh, it's, it's a pretty. He's a pretty amazing yeah, person. Yeah, I know it's an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, wait a minute. As I said, we've taken up way too. We talked for an hour and a half now. I can't believe it, but it seems like ten minutes. Um, let me say thank you very, very much for uh, being on the show today. I'm going to ask also our traditional. Uh, so now I'm working, on, working uh, on a new monograph, um, which is on the. Uh, it's tentatively entitled "Between the Wires: uh, The Anofska Camp and the Holocaust in uh, Lvov." And the focus of this project is the Yanovska uh, forced labor camp, um, which is really in Lviv, in what is now Ukraine, what was then Galicia or uh, Eastern Poland. Um, and it's really a fascinating place um, because um, it is a, a hybrid camp. It serves as a transit camp for um, Many, if if not most, of the Jews of the region of District Galician to Belzich, so they they come through here first. Um, certainly, for the the one hundred sixty thousand Jews in the Lvov ghetto, for the most part, went through here at one point. It also serves as a slave labor camp, providing labor for the city and all kinds of other places. And it is also, and I think this is the most important piece. It also is a dedicated extermination center. Um, and I and I say that not because it has gas chambers, but because mm-hmm. um, it routinely there are routinely routine mass shootings taking place in the hills behind this camp from you know the end of 1941 all the way through its evacuation in July of 1944. Um, and this happens elsewhere, but here you have not only your your sort of daily executions that may take place. Um, but you have thousands and thousands of people being shot. Um, so, 
as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, um, you know, Belzit shuts down. And after it shuts down, there is no place to kill um, the large number of Jews that remain in Lvov and in the surrounding regions. And so they come to Yunovska and they are killed there in their thousands. Um, it's also a, a really fascinating place because um, there is an incredible amount of documentary sources, uh, survivors, um, diaries, Soviet sources, Polish sources, um, perpetrator sources, maps, aerial photographs from 1944 that really allow me um, to really get back to kind of the same sort of methodology that I, I brought to the, my first book, which is this idea of really trying to look at a, at a micro perspective and really sort of figure out, you know, what's going on in this place. Um, but also really to um, indulge uh, the digital humanities side of, of, of my work. Um, so I'm doing things like looking at social network analysis of the guards um, and the various other camps that they were involved in, in the region. And then when they came and left and, and how that works, um, as well as uh, we mapped in conjunction with the scholars lab here at University of Virginia, which is amazing. We mapped um, 17,000 inhabitants of the Lvov ghetto based on ghetto work card information. So we know where they lived um, and who they worked for, um, which is going to be an important piece of this. And um, the last sort of digital piece is using this aerial photograph um, and building a GIS, um, geographic information system off of it. Um, I'm working with my collaborators to, um, to build a 3D model, um, digital 3D model of the camp um, using uh, this photograph, uh, photos from the immediately after liberation, as well as, and I think this is the most interesting piece, one of the prisoners, a guy named Zev Porath, um, was an architect. And he was installed on the third floor of the headquarters building, designing, you know, buildings and, you know, doing very stuff that certainly was below his skill level. But he sat there and he drew architecturally, you know, rigorous drawings of the buildings in the camp. And so one of the projects that I'm hoping to do in conjunction with this is to create this, this 3D visualization and then add to it um, testimony about these different spaces. You know, and so can we map spaces of fear, spaces of economy, spaces of um, sexual violence, for example, and there's a lot of it, um, and these sorts of things using a variety of sources um, to really have a, an integrated digital project. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And I have to mention um, in regards to this project that um, there's a, a wonderful relationship that's developed between me, uh, my research assistants here at the University of Virginia, undergraduate students who are volunteering to help me with this, um, a lot of the coding and um, database development, as well as the Center for um, the Urban History of East Central Europe um, in Lviv, who have been simply amazing, um, as they are also interested in bringing the history of this camp to, um, to the public, because it's something that um, is not present in the landscape of, of Lviv or really in the memory of the Ukrainians um, who live there. And so they're really working to 
to create memorials and signage and things like that. And of course, as often happens, this place is still a prison today. It's a Ukrainian prison. And it's so the site is inaccessible from that perspective. Um, but I'm very excited about this project, as you can tell. Um, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to moving forward with it. Well, uh, I hope you come back on the show when you're done with it. I'm sure that you will, because I always enjoy talking to you, even though we only get to talk once every, what is it, like four years? <laughs> well, I'm as quick as I can, but I, yeah. I, really, I really enjoy talking with, it, with you as yeah, well and having a chance to really um, sort of lay out some of these issues and discuss them. Yeah, that's great. So uh, let me tell our listeners that today we have been talking with Waitman Bourne about his book, The Holocaust in Eastern Europe at the Epicenter of the Final Solution. It's a terrific book. I hope to go out and buy it. Waitman, thanks you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, as always. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you for your support of the New Books Network. And I will talk to you later.